You're listening to Denver Orbit. Episode 8. Six more days till Halloween. Denver Orbit, an audio magazine that features voices, stories, and music from Colorado's creative community. I'm the ghost of Josh Madison. And I'm Ryan Connell, wearing a witch's hat. You may have noticed that this is an extra episode from our normal every other week schedule. It is a supernatural aberration, a phantom from another dimension. A Halloween episode, a real spooktacular. Halloween's our favorite holiday, so we wanted to do something special for you. Yeah. You know what? Let's just jump right into it. First up is a story from Amanda E.K. This is an abridged version of a story first published in Suspect Press. We will link to the full story on our website. The boiler room was loud. It chugged. It hissed. Its pipes slithered out beneath the school like the tentacles of a giant beast sending blistering hot water to ancient radiators. Willard examined the boilers, checking the pH and pressure levels. There were consequences when the boilers were neglected. Steam condensed on pipes dripping on Willard all day long, dripping onto Lily's clouded picture frame sullied with the soot of passing time. She was ten when the picture was taken, but the years since her disappearance had made the picture warped and hazy. He used to say Lily had a guardian angel, her mother who died when Lily was seven. But there was no such thing as angels, only ghosts to chase him to his grave. He had his work, and that was all. He'd work until his body broke down like the aging boilers he replaced every few years, the rust of death sticking to his stocky, hardened shell. And then he, too, would be replaced. But until that day, he'd keep the school and its students warm and safe, the very thing he failed to do for Lily. He worked at the school, but he didn't teach. No, not him. Not enough smarts for that, though he liked it when they called him Mr. Furon. It made him feel equal with the teachers, made him feel smarter than he was. He knew he wasn't attractive like the teachers upstairs. His face looked like a charcoal painting from years of burned scars and soot, but it suited him, matched his insides anyway. Some kids shrank away from him when he spoke. His voice was loud and his hearing half gone from contending with the boilers. Some kids said it was his fault when Lily disappeared. Willard acted like he didn't hear them, but inside he seethed with anger. Few people ever came down to the boiler room, so with any luck he'd keep his secret safe forever. He walked to his cot and sat down with a thud, making the rusty hinges creak. He had a home, but it was too quiet there. The quiet made him anxious. He needed an endless hum to fill his ears and a sky of pipes to sleep beneath. At home, he couldn't hide from Lily's screams. They gave him migraines that kept him from his work. After 20 years, he learned that time healed nothing, but work could mask the worst. The boilers purred as though unwinding for the night. He pulled the greasy lamp chain by his cot and lay back into the darkness, thinking of the upcoming Christmas holiday. He pictured Lily in her Christmas dress, the two of them dancing to winter melodies in the kitchen, Willard tossing her into the air and catching her on the way down. 
keeping her safe. The image as crisp as fresh baked pie despite the decades of heartache between then and now. Willard supervised detention when no one else could do it, and today he sat with two board sisters who begged him for a tour of the boiler room. They said they loved creepy places, and maybe he felt he had something to prove. The boiler room wasn't creepy, only intimidating at first with its hiccups and shadows. It was cozy once you settled in, nothing to fear. So he agreed to show them around. He felt like an official tour guide showing off his area of expertise. For a few minutes at least, he could be one of the teachers. It was like the days with Lily after school when she'd wait for him to finish with his pressure checks, imagining she was in a metal forest. These sisters, Audrey and Ginny, held hands as they wandered through the maze with widened eyes. Audrey's auburn hair and Ginny's upturned nose reminded Willard of Lily, like she'd been reincarnated and split in half, her features shared between the sisters. It didn't seem fair that some kids, most kids, got to lead a full and normal life. The girls told Willard they'd heard the rumors about Lily, the stories of her ghost roaming the halls at night, moving desks and emptying drawers, searching for her kidnapper. Some kids said killer. It had been a rumor since she'd first disappeared, though the police declared her disappearance an unsolvable mystery after combing the town for months. Before the sisters left, Willard asked them if they'd like to see a picture of his daughter. They said yes and huddled around him. Ginny looked real hard at Lily, but Audrey didn't say a word. Something else had caught her attention. Her hand reached out and grabbed her on a bright red knob, about to give it a spin. If she turned it too far to the left, the pipes might not withstand the pressure. Hey, look out! Willard grabbed at her arm. Ow! Audrey cried. A line of blood beaded up on her palm. Gotta be real careful with those, said Willard, his heart racing. I'll get you bandaged up. You're lucky that cut's not worse. But it's your fault, yelled Audrey. Oh no, I told you first thing to keep your hands to yourself in the boiler room. He started to sweat and wiped his face with a paper towel from the dispenser on the wall. I don't remember that, Mr. Furon, said Ginny. Maybe we should go. After I care for that cut. That's the number one rule in here. Keep your hands to yourself. Plain common sense. How am I supposed to keep you kids safe if you don't follow the rules? Willard's voice rose louder than he intended. Audrey tugged her arm out of its grip and hugged it to her chest. She looked like she was about to cry. In fact, she looked terrified. Willard softened and managed an apology, but Ginny grabbed her sister's hand and they left without saying goodbye. Maybe he'd overreacted, but you could never be too careful with instruments under pressure. Willard needed to sit down. He felt faint. He'd failed to keep a student safe. He rubbed his eyes, and Lily was there at his feet, crumpled on the floor. She visited him like this often, a sight worse than death, beyond death, her skin torn, loose, and red. The front of her dress half melted into her skin, his lily, his wilting flower draped over his arms, wet with tears and steam. He'd only left her alone for a minute. Sometimes she still woke him up, crying at night. Papa, it's dark in here. Can I please have some lights? Like the colorful ones at Christmas? No lights, Lily. They draw attention. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. She was ten. She was tall and smart. She loved ghost stories and flashlights and sleeping in tents. She was curious but never rebellious. 
She looked at Willard like a celebrity, the man with all the keys who went where no one was allowed. He felt powerful when she bragged to his friends that he could fix anything. Everybody made mistakes. His just happened to be the one that ended his daughter's life. A neglected, loose-fitted pipe under too much pressure. He shouldn't have left her alone. Told her he'd be right back when called away. If he'd been with her, he'd have noticed something wasn't right by the sound. He'd have gotten her out in time. Willard felt his world unraveling for the third time as Principal Nolan explained from his desk about the parents' fears and why he had to let Willard go. Willard wiped at his face. What if his replacement went snooping around, looking places he didn't need to look? He'd probably want to clean out the pile of rusted boilers and pipes in the far corner. And he'd probably notice one was heavier than it should be, with something resting inside. Willard would have to find a way to take her with him, his sweet lily sealed inside an iron tomb. Panic flashed through his body like lightning and Willard abruptly stood up. He was so lost in thought he didn't notice Principal Nolan extending a hand to him. He just walked out of the office, his hands to himself. He had work to do. The battered boiler rattled in the back of Willard's truck. He hadn't looked inside since he'd welded it shut after the accident, since wrapping Lily like a gift in plastic. He'd fire it open and bury her at home in the backyard. He'd plant a bed of lilies in the spring, find an angel at a garden shop to stick into the dirt. A smiling angel with glittery wings, weatherproofed to last the ages, protecting her at last. Amanda is the editor-in-chief of Suspect Press, a short fiction writer, and an educator. She's a member of the Knife Brothers Writing Group, which is a small collective of short fiction writers, and you can also find her work in Suspect Press, Birdie, and over at ubiquites.wordpress.com, and I'm butchering that pronunciation, I'm sure, so I'm just going to spell it. That's Y-U-B-I-K-W-E-T-E-S dot wordpress.com. And hey, since you're already on the internet doing stuff, uh, swing by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Denver Orbit and tell us what you think of the show and what your favorite televised Halloween special is. I'm a big fan of the Garfield one with the pirates. Oh, that's a good one. I'm a big fan of uh, the X-Files one where the X-Files find those spooky things oh that's a good that's a good that's a classic yeah it's a classic classic episode Mm -hmm. uh we also have a pretty weird instagram page that's fun and you know i mean it's another thing to look at on instagram so do that yep Hey, uh, also, we'd really love it if you gave us a rating on iTunes. It helps us out a lot, and it also works as evidence that you liked the show before it was cool. Up next is a song from Cities of Earth. It's called Cities on Earth. 
For more from Cities of Earth, go to citiesofearth.com or citiesofearth.bandcamp.com. They've got a whole lot more music there, and it's all wonderful, I promise. All right. Uh, what do we have next? Uh, well, here's a question. Have you ever seen the movie Halloween 3? That's the one without Michael Myers, right? Yeah, it's a classic. It's the film that Vincent Canby of the New York Times said, and I quote, manages the not easy feat of being anti-children, anti-capitalism, anti-television, and anti-Irish all at the same time. Sounds like a masterpiece. Former Denver denizen John Olson reads aloud from the novelization of Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, to a seething mass of nameless, faceless internet listeners, bringing together the realms of the living and the dead for his project, Audiobooks for the Damned. It's time! All those lucky kids with silver shamrock masks, and this means you, gather round! Don't get too close, Betty said to her son. You'll ruin your eyes, honey. But the boy was shaking out his silver shamrock pumpkin and dragging it on over his head. He stretched the nose and found the eye holes. The announcer's Irish brogue chanted on. And now, watch the magic pumpkin. Watch! The screen was taken up corner to corner by a vivid, two-dimensional pumpkin graphic. Electric orange against a neutral background. Extreme close-up with broad sawtooth mouth and triangular eyes. There was a high-voltage crackle in the back of the set as the screen went black. Not blank. Black. Now what is this? said Buddy. They screwed up the commercial. The pumpkin flashed back on the screen then black, then the pumpkin. I think this thing is a big joke, said Betty. The flashing alternated faster and faster so that the pumpkin's afterimage remained while the background changed. Black through the eye holes, then white, black, white. The pumpkin shimmered and seemed to lift off the screen. As the room strobed with bright and dark frames, little Buddy's hands crept up to his mask. Little Buddy? said Betty. The stroboscopic effect speeded up until the room was blazing under a machine-gun assault of orange phosphor. The shamrock button on the back of Little Buddy's mask became activated. It glowed red-hot. The boy lurched back from the set, clutching the mask. A strangled moan came from beneath the mouth holes as he attempted to remove it. Little Buddy! Betty stood up in shock as the boy pitched forward head-first onto the carpet. 
Little Buddy kicked and tried to raise himself. His pumpkin head melted. The orange rubber wrinkled and ran like dissolving flesh, uncovering his eyes. They were two blood-red orbs. His parents were both on their feet, but it was too late. The mask hole which was his mouth tore open in a rictus. A wiry appendage poked forth, covered with bristles. It hooked to the carpet and pulled another appendage out after it. And another. And another. It was a spider the size of a black hand. Betty released a half-scream, half-whimper, and fell upon her son. The spider sprang to her face. She shrieked in horror as it stung her again and again. Buddy had to do something. He dove down onto his wife, covering her. But already she was twitching into paralysis. Then, out of little Buddy's throat, came the writhing extension of something long and impossibly thick, sheathed in slime, like a swollen, blackened tongue. A snake. As it forked the air and unveiled its dripping fangs, Buddy inserted his arms under his son in an attempt to turn him over, to lift him away. But the fangs sank deep into his leg, cutting through his trousers and burying their needle-sharp injections to the bone. His legs numbed and collapsed under him. Little Buddy fell back, mask and face crumbling as one into the discoloring carpet. Like a cripple, Buddy tried to stand. He could not. He confronted the camera in the corner, tears streaming down his face. Damn you, Cochrane! Liar! Murderer! Damn you to hell! Damn you! He was pulled down with the rest of his family as the defiled head of his only son opened like the doorway to another dimension and spewed forth darkness and decay. Buddy Cupfer wept impotently, pounding his fist into the carpet, which now crawled with the unspeakable malformations of nature's underside. His fist rose in a last spastic gesture of defiance, as his physical body and the family he had created, the substance of his life and the world of his choice, all he had lived and worked for, and the only dream he had ever known, degenerated before his eyes into a churning, formless mass of unleashed chaos. Sacrifices, said Chalice. His cheeks were burning and his body quaked. Strong, black-gloved hands restrained him. To what pagan god, Cochrane? For what purpose? God? What a quaint word. I am speaking to you of our way, the one way, the old way, as it was done long before your unshorn carpenter from Galilee chose to destroy himself on that rude cross. Do you know anything about Halloween, doctor? I do now, said Chalice. His arms nearly broke as he strained forward. Tisk, tisk, my good man. Ignorance is such a convenient excuse for self-righteousness. No, of course you don't know. How could you? You've thought no further than that strange custom of letting your children dress themselves in morbid costumes and go begging for handouts. He extended his arms to give audience to the entire chamber, as if the technicians and graysuits could hear and understand his words. But he had not bothered to program them for such a function. He was himself his own best audience. Now he spoke to the far reaches of the hall, 
to the prehistoric stone monolith rather than to its custodial minions who continued their chipping multiplying the icon to spread its body across the land it was the start of the new year in our old celtic lands we would wait in our houses made of turf the barriers were down you see between the real and the unreal the dead might look in sit by our bit of fire it was our glorious festival of Samhain. The last great one was three thousand years ago. His eyes glazed with rapture, mirroring some previously unspoken memory. He continued in a faraway voice. The hills ran with the blood of countless animals and countless children. I don't want to hear this, said Chalice. Oh, but you really should. It was part of our world. Our craft. Witchcraft. Your term. To us, it was a way of controlling our world. The only way. As it is, once again. Cochrane glowered at the television equipment, the high-tech products which surrounded him. All this has failed you and your kind, hasn't it, Doctor? You can't predict with certainty any event in your world, not even the rudimentary workings of your own bodies. Isn't that so? We try, said Chalice. We're getting better at it all the time. But will time wait for you? I think not. Even my ancestors were left behind by the machinations of history. They had the power, but they lacked one ingredient, the harnessing and storing of that power, which, ironically, is what you and yours have now provided. Times have not really changed, my friend. The quest for control remains a constant. And now it's time again. In the end, we don't decide these things, you know. We are but a part of the great plan. Today, the planets are in alignment. The moon is in syzygy, and it's time. That's all. Cochrane snapped his fingers. A gray suit held out three masks. Which one? Ah, I think this one will suit you perfectly. It becomes you. It will become you, you know. He selected the painted skull and pulled it over Chalice's head like a hood. "'Tell me one thing first, said Chalice. "'Why children?' "'Do I need a reason?' "'Oh, I could tell you that they are the easiest prey. And they are, you know. People nowadays no longer listen to them. They provide the easiest entry, the path of least resistance. What better reason from a purely pragmatic view?' But they are such irritating little creatures, don't you agree? You know that you do, deep down. They are as noisy as wretched sheep and twice as dirty, given to us from out of the filthiest part of a woman. And you know what happens to dirty little lambs, don't you, doctor? They are invariably given over to the slaughter. I want to see Ellie. Cochran jerked the mask down. He laughed crookedly. Oh, you will, doctor. I promise you, you will. He lowered the mask all the way and snapped his fingers again. Take him away.
You can find Audiobooks for the Damned on Facebook at facebook.com slash audiobooksforthedamned and on YouTube under the same name or on the internet at audiobooksforthedamned.com. Also, Halloween 3 is playing at the C Film Center October 26th and 27th. Josh and I might just be there watching it ourselves, so uh, get an autograph or whatever. (laughs) It'll be worth nothing. And that just about does it for us. Remember, we are always looking for submissions, so if you've got something you'd like to share with the world, or at least Denver anyway, send it our way. Uh, We can even help record it and shape it if need be. Denver Orbit is written and produced by Josh Madison and Ryan Connell, which is me. And Josh does all the cool editing and sound design. So uh, make sure to subscribe on whatever podcast program you listen to, and uh, we'll have another episode out in about two weeks. If you'd like to hear more from Music Writing Guy, go fuck yourself. All right. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Having done that, what do we do now? Uh, 